If you haven't already, would you please open in your Bibles to Romans 3 verses and get your eyes on verses 9 to 10. I just want to remind you, if you got a, I hope you got a service guide when you came in this morning. I've placed the sermon outline right in that service guide as a way to help you if, if you desire to take notes. You don't have to take notes. I'm actually not a note taker in church, but if, if you would like to, it's there for you. <clears throat> so, good morning. Did y'all have a good Christmas and New Year time? It just, it can be kind of a special time of the year, can it? That time between the Christmas and New Year's kind of holidays on the calendar and there's usually time off for the kids in this season. We have family and friends that come over and, and for us, this being our first Christmas and New Year's in our new home here in Salida, we had some new traditions that we were kind of getting underway as we make our way in establishing a home here. And at the same time, we celebrated some of the old familiar traditions, Susan and I and Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was able to be home for two weeks on leave from the Marine Corps. It was so good to have him with us. And, and so some of those traditions are, we love in that, in that time off between those holidays, to often there is a fire in the hearth and praise Jesus, there's a fireplace in the house that we're renting and staying here in Salida. And so there was a fire in the hearth. And, and Susan, I would say we all like to play games, but really Susan likes to play games. And then we, you know, try and love her well and play those games with her. And so we play games at the table and we usually have, you know, Christmas cookies around and, and Christmas crack. Are y'all familiar? with Christmas crack. It's that Chex Mix with those cashews and almonds and stuff, and you can't stop shoving it into your mouth. And so we're eating that. And then another one of our traditions is to have the TV, or in this case, we don't have a TV in our main area. So we just brought the laptop in, brought up YouTube TV, and started playing Law and Order. Because that's what we, it's just what we do. I can't explain it to you. It's just what, it's just what happens. So it is on a constant run. I mean, it is always going as we're playing games. You're familiar with law in order, right? I mean, does your blood get pumping like mine does when that familiar phrase comes on? In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate but equally important groups. The police who investigate crimes and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. Boom, boom. <laughs> you all sound familiar. You know, it is one of the most popular shows in recent television history. It is in its 22nd year this year. There's even a channel, the channel that we were on, that has it on a 24-hour loop. Like you can just nonstop watch Law and Order. Why do you think that is? Why is this show and others like it and the explosion, there's been a literal explosion of true crime podcasts. Why are they all so popular? I think it is because there is in every human being a deep desire to see justice done. We love to see the bad guys tracked down by the good guys, the police who investigate crime. We love the drama of the courtroom scene. Who loves courtroom scene dramas, right? Like, we love that. The strategy, the case being made and argued by the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. The witnesses on the stand, the judge ruling over it all, waiting for that inevitable surprise turn in the story, right? All leading up to that moment when the foreman of the jury stands up and the verdict 
is in. We love these stories because they are our stories as a culture, right? Ripped from the headlines. Stories of wrongs done and justice sought. Stories of law and the pursuit of order because this is a disordered world. You know, they loved these stories, real stories, in Paul's world too. One historian notes that almost everyone would have been much more familiar with law court proceedings than even most people are today with law and order. Communities were small and tight-knit. Cases would be tried in public. Everyone would want to see what was going on. You see, they didn't have a screen to watch them on. This was the live entertainment of Paul's day. And as a master teacher, Paul taps into that cultural experience and its popularity because these really are humanity's stories. And the law court scene is, in fact, a part of the story of every person who has ever lived. For every person will face one day a grand and cosmic courtroom drama at the end of days with a verdict coming in from a judge, which will mean eternal life or a kind of eternal life that is death. Everybody will face that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself and Paul. So moments ago, Romans 3 verses 9 to 20 was read for you. As you heard it, and maybe you've been here in this Roman series that we've been in since, and you're thinking back maybe all the way to chapter 1, verse 18, all the way now to chapter 3, verse 20, and maybe you're thinking like I was this week on Monday morning when I read this text, geez, Paul, are you still talking about how bad we all are? I mean, you've been doing this since chapter 1, verse 18. I mean, literally pages of how bad we are, okay? We get it. We are without excuse. We're inexcusable. Fair enough, point made, check. Can we move on? Don't you have something new to say? But that's just it, Paul said back to me. You see, I do have something new to say if you'll listen carefully. For this bit here is where my argument has been heading all along as I've made my way through addressing a depraved Gentile society in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and critical moralizers in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, and self-confident Jews and religious people in chapter 2, verse 17, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. And while I've been alluding to this along the way, it's time to make it crystal clear. And the best way that you're going to understand this is if I give you a visual and together we step into the courtroom where the defendant is a Jewish defendant. And in some senses really represents all of humanity. And I am going to present evidence based on an investigation and I will prosecute this offender. Boom, boom. Okay, so once again, it's time to engage your imaginations, family. So if you need to, close your eyes. Just please don't doze off. And I want you to imagine a courtroom, right? And what do we, what do we see in courtrooms? We see kind of this almost throne-like dais where the judge is sitting and there's this 
little box next to it where all the witnesses are going to enter into. And then over here, there's another box where all the jurors are going to sit. And, and behind us is, is all the gallery, right, where all the spectators can sit and watch. And, and right here are two tables, one where there's a defendant and that defense attorney and another table where there's a prosecutor and maybe an assistant prosecutor getting ready to make the case. In this courtroom, Paul is the district attorney, and he gets up and he provides his opening argument. Verse 9, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged, charged, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Okay, so now let me bring you back up to speed from two weeks ago. You'll recall that Paul has been making this sustained argument against all humanity, proving our godlessness and unrighteousness as a way to explain why God is justified in revealing his wrath against all humanity, chapter 1, verse 18. He has shown that this is equally applicable, this godlessness and unrighteousness, to Gentiles and Jews. All are without excuse. All. And you'll remember that this raised an objection in chapter 3, verse 8 or verse 1, excuse me. So what advantage does the Jew have? In other words, why should we follow the law? Why partake in Jewish religion if it doesn't do us any good? And Paul responded in chapter 3, verse 2, by answering that the advantage and benefits of Jewishness were considerable in every way. He listed the first advantage in chapter 3, verse 2, with some explanation and ramifications, but he won't continue that list until chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. So you can see that sermon from two weeks ago if you want to hear a full treatment. And that brings us up now to chapter 3, verse 9, which is Paul's opening argument in this courtroom drama. And he comes back to the question of Jewish advantage. What then? Are we, the Jews, better off, therefore, than the Gentiles? Not at all. Haven't you been listening to my long, involved, and detailed argument from chapter 2, verse 12 to 3, 8, proving your unrighteousness? Don't you see it for what it is? You are just as unrighteous as the Gentiles. So let me make clear what I was doing. My arguments are the charge that is now listed on the court record. And the charge is this. Jews and Gentiles, in other words, all humans, are all under sin. Underline that, please, in your Bibles. Because this is massively important. And it's one of those new things that Paul told us he would be introducing. And the new thing he's introducing is sin. Sin as a noun. Sin as a thing. Now, maybe it surprises you to hear that because it surprised me. I didn't realize until this week that he had not used this word yet in his argument. He'd used a lot of words that would describe, that we would describe as sin. He has used a lot of words that we would say come about because of sin. He's talked about sinning, but he hasn't used this word, sin. And I think that's incredibly and massively important because he's now bringing clarity to the biggest problem that we all face, the problem behind all of the other problems he's already listed, and it is this. The tyranny of a cruel, malevolent 
living power of sin that humans are incapable of defeating on their own. Paul is revealing something fundamental to reality and terrifying, should be terrifying for every human. You see, Paul does not say that all people commit sins as if doing things contrary to God's will is just an occasional problem, nor does he even say that all people are sinners, suggesting that sin is a pervasive problem. Rather, Paul says that all people are under sin. He uses this language to speak of a situation of domination. The human plight is not that people commit sins or even that they are in the habit of committing sin. The problem is that people are helpless prisoners of sin. And I think that's scary. If you ponder this for any length of time, it's scarier than any horror movie that you can watch. Sin is not only an act of wrongdoing, it is a power with a life of its own. It is a force that works at a personal level against the whole world, imprisoning everything under its power, Galatians 3.22. And this confronts our sensibilities. So many of us, believer and unbeliever, are under the illusion that we have a will that is free. We call it, some people call it, free will. But my friend, this is not the testimony of the one who created us. Jesus said to the crowds in his teachings, John 8, 34, truly I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits a sin, one sin, shows that they are a slave of sin. Paul will write elsewhere that we are by nature children of wrath. He will go on in chapters 5 through 7 to further explain this reality, particularly what it means to wrestle with this evil power even after we become disciples of Jesus. But for now, we must confess and jettison any idea of democratic, American-esque freedom of will. For Paul will authoritatively teach elsewhere that we are either enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. That's it, one enslavement or the other. No freedom, at least in the way that Americans like to talk about it. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith so wonderfully summarizes the scripture's teaching on this point. I see why confessions are important. You will. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. That strikes at the heart of our pride. We want to say, I believe that part of the problem is we want to say, I had something to do with it. I chose Jesus. No, you didn't. He chose you. 
and by his grace. Dead people can't do anything, folks. They can't until they're raised from the dead, until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and gives them life to open their eyes and now see Jesus for who he is, the irresistible Christ. And now I say, yes, I submit to you, king. Can't help yourself at that point. But you can't save yourself. The Bible is frighteningly clear. We are not able to improve on our own. I see a culture around us trying to use education, governmental programs and policies, charitable pursuits, technological inventions and innovations to get out of all the trouble that we find ourselves in. But none of that is going to work to break us free from bondage to this suprahuman power and force and tyrant called sin. And just one verse Paul's opening argument is absolutely devastating. But it calls for proof. It calls for evidence. It's what you have to do in courtrooms. You have to prove your assertions. It calls for an expert witness. So as Paul stands in front of the prosecutor's desk, he calls his one and only witness to the box. The God of the universe himself. Do you see it there in verse 10? As it is written. As what is written? The word of God. Family, before we hear the unparalleled and irrefutable witness of God himself, let's first take note of Paul's example, okay? When trying to help those around us understand themselves and the world in which they live, we must not be ashamed of the Bible. It is the very testimony of God. Rather than standing on our authority and arguments, are they what really matters anyway? We must rest on the authoritative words of God for there is where the power is. That's what matters. And this is what Paul does in the courtroom. He allows God to bring evidence proving that all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, is trapped under sin's power. Paul does this by quoting from Ecclesiastes 7, Psalm 14, 53, 5, 140, 10, 36, and Isaiah 59. So now, in chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, I, I want you to keep, don't lose the imagination in the fact that we are in a courtroom. See God there taking his place in the witness box and hear his testimony. Paul, because humanity is trapped under sin's power, the root problem that has developed, which leads to all other evils, is the ungodliness of sin. You see, no one understands. They cannot grasp or hold on to the idea of me and my righteousness. It is a challenge. It is foreign to their thought and behavior. And because of this, they dismiss me. There is no fear of me before their eyes. And here is what is so tragic, Paul. Humanity does not seek me at all, making my glory their supreme concern. They do not set me before them. There is no room for me in their thoughts or their day. They do not love me or cherish me or my ways. I would give them a life of flourishing, but they reject it. 
And in so doing, they attempt to raise themselves to the place where only I can sit. They attempt to take the throne, to rule, to be me as God's. And this isn't just some of humanity, Paul. You see, another tragic consequence of sin's power is the universality of sin. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks me. There is no one who does good. Listen now, not even one. All have turned away. All. From the best woman, the most noble man, the most learned teacher, the most charitable person, the greatest idealist, the supremely renowned thinker, the Nobel Prize peace winners, not one single human has ever been able to stand up to the test of the law, which is the expression of my character and righteousness. All have failed. And probably the most catastrophic aspect of sin's power, Paul, is that this universal failure across humanity is also pervasive and total in every human. Sin's power affects every part and member and organ of a person. Their throats are open graves full of corruption and infection. Their tongues practice deceit instead of being dedicated to the truth. Their lips spread poison like snakes. Their mouths are filled with bitter curses. Their feet are swift in the pursuit of violence, shedding blood in murder and war, scattering ruin and misery and wretchedness throughout their lives. Instead of walking in a way in life of peace and wholeness, they are selfish in their marriages and lazy in their work. They care too much about their image portrayed on their Facebook pages and Twitter feeds and Instagram threads. Their thoughts are filled with lust. Their pursuits are filled with greed. Their words destroy relationships. They spin and twist the truth. They puff themselves up and tear others down. They spread gossip in their workplaces and in their churches. They are destroying harmony in families families and schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. They grumble and complain and have ungrateful hearts. And that is the real problem, Paul. Their hearts. You see, the depravity of humanity in all of these things, throat, tongue, lips, mouth, feet, is total. But it is as my own son, Jesus said of the ancestors of that Jewish defendant sitting over there at that table. Do you remember it? Paul, he quoted, my son Jesus quoted the words that I had given to the prophet Isaiah so long ago. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And my son also taught this truth, Paul. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. You see, Paul, toxic language and actions spring from a malignant heart. Sick speech and actions are just a symptom of a much graver problem. A corrupt inner person and internal condition. A soul that is a grave And a hush falls over the courtroom. And Paul rises from his seat at the prosecutor's table and says, Your Honor, the prosecution rests. 
And at that, the defense leaps to its feet. Hey, hey, wait, wait a second. Hey, we have a witness too, Your Honor. We call on our behalf as the Jewish people that which we possess, that which is the way to escape sin's power and consequent judgment, that which is the pathway to freedom when we do its work and follow its guidelines, we call the law. And as we watch this scene unfold, this seems like a reasonable defense strategy for the Jewish defendant because possession and observance of the law was thought to make a person right before God, known as justification. This law and the keeping and sharing of it is proof of their covenant status before God that they are members of the children of Israel, part of God's people under not sin's rule, but his rule. So why not? Of course they would call this witness. However, as fans of courtroom dramas know, the first rule of lawyering is to make sure you know exactly what a witness is going to say. And the defense has made a critical error. For to appeal to the law is like calling a defense witness who endorses what the prosecution and his key witness has been saying all along. So we turn our attention to the law on the witness stand. And we hear him say, well, actually, God is right. Go figure. And all Jews are under sin. Even Jews who have trusted in me admit this. But here's the thing. It is a problem I cannot fix. You see, if you could keep me, then I could help you. I could make you right, but you can't. Instead, you have broken me. And you may think, but wait, I have kept some of the law. I'm not all bad. Well, I'm sorry. Whoever keeps me entirely but then stumbles at even one little point is guilty of breaking all of me. And thus you cannot count on me for protection against judgment. You see, I'm actually a witness for the other side. You are guilty. You are a sinner. You are evil. And the Jewish defendant knows it's over. <laughs> and we do too. One historian helps us see at this point. In Paul's world, if you were on trial and had nothing more you could say in your defense, you would put a hand over your mouth as a sign. And if you didn't do this when your loss was apparent, you know, like obvious to everybody else in the room, sometimes court officials would strike, they would slap your mouth to indicate that you should shut up. Because you're obviously guilty and you should not be attempting to defend yourself any longer. Family, look at verses 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because it is knowledge of sin that comes through the law. This was the devastating turn of events of the witness of the law in that courtroom. 
The law can't save someone incapable of keeping it. Rather, the law shows us our sin more clearly than we could have ever seen without it. Martin Luther, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin that by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed rescue that can only be found in Jesus. When we come to the end of a study and exposition of scripture, I think one of our responses should always be, what, what do you want me to learn? Father, what do you want me to learn? Now, I've told you this a number of times. I'm, I'm going to say it again because I, I keep wanting to set your expectations for when you show up on Sunday. I can't tell you that. You confessed this morning that you believe in the Holy Spirit. Believe in him. He's the one who needs to answer that question for you. What, what do you want me to learn this morning, Father, from chapter three, verses nine to 20? What I can do, what I can do this morning is share with you that at least two answers that he gave me to that question when I prayed it this week. Here was the first response to that question for me. The Father taught me the seriousness of sin. I felt it like a heavy weight this week, I was convicted of my tendency to make light of sin and not to see it the way that God sees it. When I, li when I listened to God on the witness stand, I saw some of my speech and behavior and living in his words. When I listened to the law, I felt exposed. Have you ever been caught Remember what that feels like? At times this week, it had me on my face in my study with tears streaming down my cheeks, feeling the weight of sin. I was embarrassed and mortified by the evil that is still within me, and I felt a bond with Paul's words elsewhere. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, in case you're worried about me, I understand the truth that in Jesus I am no longer enslaved to sin. But as I prayed and thought through some restless nights, I struggled and struggle with sin's ongoing influence in me, even as I am no longer its slave. I am grieved that I still present my members to unrighteousness while no longer enslaved under its power. And that demands further meditation and wrestling on my part. And it demands further meditation and wrestling on our part at this point in Paul's argument that we do this together. But he's not going to get to this. I'm sorry. He's not going to get to that, that issue of like, how, why do I still struggle if I'm not under it as a slave anymore. He's not going to get to that until a little bit in five and six and seven. So we're going to have to wait to do that together, but you don't have to wait for me. 
You can go up there and read about that and pray about that and study about that. Here's the, and know that God is faithful and patient and kind and he will give you understanding in everything, okay? He will, usually not on our timeline. (laughs) The second thing that our father pressed upon me was the reality that all around us, friends, listen, all around us are men and women who know enough about God from his glory displayed in our amazing river valley to make them without excuse. And they stand, as you and I did before we knew Jesus, they stand under sin's power, guilty, and thus headed for judgment and God's eternal wrath. Our Father impressed upon me this week that I need to remember this. I need to have it constantly at the forefront of my mind that I have been placed in Salida to do something about that, to help open their eyes to that reality in their lives, to make the case and bring the evidence and bring them to an understanding, to help them seek after God in a way that they haven't because of the weight and burden and condemnation of their sin. And so maybe we come along and and we speak what to them sounds like antiquated and puritanical language like sin. (laughs) We We don't talk that often about sin in our culture, I don't think. And they don't see it, do they? Do you have unbelieving friends? I mean, they see themselves as pretty good people, right? Sure, they do wrong now and again, a lie here or there, losing it with the kids, betraying a friend, cheating a little bit on their taxes, giving, but, but giving to charities too and, and serving at the granary or the food shelf, donating to worthy causes, shoveling the drive of an elderly neighbor. And all that bad stuff in the world, hey, that's not on me. That is the result of, you know, economic and political and social forces that are completely out of my control. I'm the victim, really, of larger forces. It's not my fault. In any way, it's, it's all those other people out there that are the bad people. But I think most people know that that's a cop-out and a smokescreen. They know the problem isn't just out there but inside themselves. Because they have, listen, every single person walking this earth has this vision on the inside of who they want to be and they see a gap between that vision and what's happening on the outside of who they really are. Right? I mean, we're all falling short of our own expectations usually to one degree or another. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it this way. If only, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Problem solved. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to give up a piece of his own heart? And I think people know this. They find this struggle and reality in themselves that at least, at least a piece of their heart is evil and they are mortified over the evil that they are capable of. I was reading someone, so I, I was thinking through this, like, okay, so how, how would I do this? How would I talk to people to make them aware of this? How would I apply Romans 3, 9 to 20 in our town, the people living in our town? I was reading uh, a scholar named Michael Bird 
And he started talking about this. And, and he said, you know, part of the problem is a lot of people don't talk about sin. And when they hear us talking about sin, they, they kind of just think of it like that churchy religious thing. And we're just trying to come down on them and point out all their sin to them when they look at us and see all of our sin. And they just don't want to have anything to do with it. And they just want to brush it aside. And so he said, what if we come up with a different category to talk about this? What if we ta- talked about the category of evil? Because everybody, people might want to brush off sin, but people know that there's evil in the world. They look around and they are confronted with evil and deep down inside, they are very, very afraid of evil. And evil is something that we believe in too, right? I mean, actually, we take it far more seriously. We understand 1 John 5, 9, that the entire world is under the power of an evil one. We believe that there's an evil invader in this world trying to destroy all that God created. We believe that evil is not the way that things are supposed to be and that it will be vanquished once and for all, but not by us and not on our own. Because not only is evil out there, but it's in here. This dividing line in every human heart and even a cursory investigation into somebody's heart will bear this out. And maybe that's what we need to encourage people to do is to look inside themselves and be honest about what them see what about what they see. Ask them what TV show they're watching. Law and Order? CSI? Right? Special Victims Unit? Listening to a true crime podcast and ask them, why do you love that show? Because I love seeing bad people tracked down and brought to justice. And then ask them, and what if you were on trial to see if you'd live the perfect evil-free life? Are you willing to say that there isn't one instance of evil behavior that wouldn't be revealed if a team of investigators combed through your life And the evidence was brought against you at trial by a skilled prosecutor. What would the verdict be? Good? Without evil exception? Whatsoever? No evil? No bad? Let me tell you a story in closing. Dia Carson tells the story of a successful career woman. Here it is. Mark Dever introduced me to a woman She was one of the editors of a Washington political weekly. She was about 50, a PhD in journalism, a shrewd woman, divorced, two grown sons. Well, it turned out she was a self-confessed postmodernist through and through and through, a complete relativist, good and evil, defined entirely by your social structure. You can't even say that Hitler was wrong because in his own lights, he was right. From his own perspective, he thought that what he was doing was right. So eventually she came along to a Bible study on the book of Mark. She liked it. And then she went off to Papua New Guinea during one of the political changeovers. And while she was there, just before she left, there was a priest who was arrested. He'd been there for 35 years or so. And just before he was due to retire and go back to America, he was arrested for pedophilia. Turned out that as the case was unpacked, he had sodomized at least 200 boys. For some reason, this story grabbed her When you start thinking of all the damage this would do to the boys and probably their marriages and because abused people often abuse others, where does it all end? It just really grabbed her and she came home really shaken and came back to that Bible study on Mark and told Mark Dever all about it. And he said, was it evil? And she said, well, 
probably this priest was himself abused by someone and probably he's just really a victim and, because that's the reason why people do these things. Mark responded, the Bible says that the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. All that you've told me is that evil is social. It is not individual. Evil has social dynamics that affect other people. I'm not asking whether or not there are things that help to explain why this man did certain things. The question I am asking is, the things that he did, were they evil? She just couldn't get away from the question. Was it evil? Was it evil? She began losing sleep. She wasn't able to concentrate. One night, some weeks later, she woke up in the middle of the night and this question was coming through her mind again and again and again. Was it evil? Was it evil? She stared out the window and she knew she could not say yes, but she knew she couldn't believe no. And finally, in a burst of intensity, she said, this was wicked. This is evil. And then it dawned on her. But that means that there is a category for evil and maybe it means I'm evil. And a few weeks later, she became a Christian. Worship team, would you come up? Family, our calling as believers in God and believers in evil. Please, please don't leave today and let this fly out of your mind that there is an evil force in this world trapping people under its power. Our calling is to find a way to connect others to a moral universe where these realities exist and are true. To help people see that this whole age, this entire age, is going to end in a grand courtroom scene and that all of the evidence of their lives will be brought forth. It's to help make those connections for people and then to gently ask them, to gently ask them, friends, on that day, in the courtroom, what will be your defense? What will fulfill the law's demands? What will you present in your hands? And when you draw your fleeting breath, and when your eyes shall close in death, when you soar to realms unknown and see the judge upon his throne, how will saving justice be your own.